So here's the thing. I've dated men for the past 15 years. I've had short and long-term relationships with men. I've fallen in and out of love with men. And then last year, something kind of strange happened. I fell in love with a woman. I've had little context for understanding this. My first thought, or I guess my first fear, was that I had been confused my entire life. Maybe I'd always been gay or bisexual, and I just didn't want to admit it. I honestly do not think that that is what has happened. What I do think is that for the past 20 years, my culture has been telling me things about my sexuality and about queerness that are not entirely true. This episode is about the three things I have learned in the past year. Three lessons that science is teaching me about myself. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. Your sexual orientation does not, in fact, um, prefigure who you can bond to emotionally. This is Lisa Diamond. Lisa is a professor of psychology at the University of Utah. Uh, And I've been studying sexuality and sexual identity development for about 20 years. You know, our culture tells us that sexuality is something that is in us. You are either gay, straight, or bi. You might be pansexual or asexual, but it's there. It's in you, waiting to be discovered. And your job is to figure it out. If that is true, then if you are in your 30s like me and find yourself attracted to a woman after years of heterosexual relationships, the correct narrative is that you must have been suppressing something. So obviously when this very thing happened to me, I started to think back to high school. I was trying to remember if maybe I had had these feelings all along, if I'd ever felt different as a child or adolescent. The answer, for the most part, is no. So, I did what any normal person would do in this situation. I started to Google things. Phrases like women and same-sex attraction, simply trying to find a narrative that made sense to me. And during one of those late-night Googles, I ran across the work of Lisa Diamond, and my entire world shifted. I think it would have been easy to just be like, oh my god, these women are crazy. Um, Lesson one. I am not alone. They didn't sound crazy. You know, they sounded really authentic. And um, Lisa is talking about the women in a study she conducted in the 90s when she was a young grad student at Cornell. And this was before the Internet. So uh, I recruited these women by just literally driving around the state of New York. She'd hang flyers around town, go into coffee shops, parks, pride parades. I just like went up to women who looked like they were relatively young. She wanted to study same-sex attraction in females because up until this point, we knew basically nothing about homosexuality in women. And and it was a very uh, ill-informed project because I didn't really have any specific questions. I was like, almost anything will be interesting because we know so little. With all the recruiting, she finally got a hold of almost 100 women who said, yes, 
I've been attracted to other women at some point. And then Lisa sat down and had an in-depth conversation with every single one of them and asked them each a ton of questions about their love life. Her history, her most important relationships, kind of how she thought about her sexuality. Many of these women identified as lesbians, some identified as bisexual, some said they were unlabeled, and a few said they were mostly heterosexual. And then she followed up with these women a couple of years later. Lisa found something that she was not expecting. At the second interview two years later, some of these women had switched labels. There were women who had previously identified as bisexual, who were now saying they were lesbians, which might not be all that weird. But then there were also women who had previously said that they were lesbian, but who now said that they were bi or even heterosexual. It wasn't this a situation of, oh, I've now discovered who I really am. That they were like, wow, you know, I, I thought that I was exclusively attracted to women, but, you know, then I ended up involved with, like, my best male friend. And I don't, I don't know what happened there, but it just kind of happened. And, you know, I think uh, if it weren't for the fact that these women were, you know, in their 20s. Lisa has been following up with these women every few years for the past 20 years. And she says that every time, there are women who will jump from one category to another. She adamantly says that this is not because these women are confused about their identities or that they've been suppressing something previously. After digging deep into this, she says it is a real phenomenon, that the preferences these women report are authentic at those particular moments in their lives. A woman may be attracted to women for many years, then suddenly want to be with a man, and then may shift back to females later. Other women may spend most of their lives heterosexual and have a single relationship with a woman. Women's sexuality moves and changes. It's a phenomenon that Lisa Diamond calls fluidity. I think the capacity for change and flexibility in your attractions is something that exists alongside of your orientation. It's like you have a preference and then you have a degree of flexibility around that preference. So lesson one, I am not alone. A lot of women apparently have experienced this kind of shift in their attractions. But how does this happen? How is it possible that we could be flexible in terms of the gender we are attracted to? Before we answer that, I think we first need to clear up a long-held misunderstanding. And that is this. Our sex drive and our romantic love are not the same thing. Lesson two. The part of your brain that that is responsible for you bonding to another person and falling in love with them actually has almost nothing to do with sex. It, it is the part of the brain that evolved to bond you to your caregiver as an infant. Um, and it doesn't really care about gender and it doesn't really care about sexual arousal. It cares about security. Parents and children have an insanely strong bond. Children cling to their parents, and parents often describe loving their children like they have never loved anything else in the universe. And you can actually see this bond at work in the brain. If you put a mother into a brain scanner and you have her look at a picture of her own child, 
her brain will go crazy with activation in very specific regions. The thing that's weird about this is that those same parts of the brain, they also get activated when we're looking at pictures of the person we're in love with. Most mammals have two separate systems in the brain, a system for reproduction and a system for bonding and attachment. The system for reproduction is basically our sex drive, and it involves the part of the brain that gets activated when we look at erotic images and when we're sexually aroused. This system clearly evolved to make us want to have sex with other adults in our species so that we would reproduce. The bonding system originally evolved to make us care for and protect our young. Most mammals do not form bonds with other adults. The bonding system was primarily intended for parent-offspring relationships, and the reproductive system was intended for short sexual interactions among adults. But somewhere along the way, something kind of weird happened, and some mammals, humans included, began to form attachments to other adults in their species. It was potentially due to evolutionary pressures to have family units for survival, but the interesting thing is that when we started forming attachments to other adults, we used the same bonding system that was already there. And it doesn't really care about gender, and it doesn't really care about sexual arousal. It cares about security. Now, a normal part of development... When you fall in love with someone, it is all happening inside of a brain system that did not evolve to make you have sex with that person. It is totally possible then that you could fall in love with someone you might not have ever imagined yourself with sexually. But if you are flexible in your sexuality, then love can drive arousal. And this is lesson three. Many, if not most women, can be aroused sexually by any gender, which may actually lead to our fluidity. In the 90s and 2000s, a researcher named Meredith Chivers did these studies where she had men and women look at sexual scenes. The scenes would vary in terms of how much sexual activity was going on, so it might just be a naked person walking around, not so sexual, or a person masturbating, which is a little more sexual, or two people having sex, which is clearly very sexual. These scenes also varied in terms of the gender, so the scenes could either depict men or women. Chivers wanted to know, devoid of any sort of emotional attachment or love, what are the things that physically arouse us? She had the men and women in her study wear monitors on their genitals while they were watching these scenes. For men, it was just a little string gauge that was around the penis that measures the erection. For women, it was a device that fits inside the vagina that measures the blood flow in the vaginal walls, which is... Chivers found that men's arousal was fairly predictable and consistent with their self-reported preference. A heterosexual man was aroused by any image of a woman, whether she was just walking around naked or masturbating or having sex with another woman. He was not aroused, however, by similar images of other men. Women, on the other hand, showed a totally different pattern. In general, women's arousal was not determined by the gender of the person in the scene, but rather by the degree of sexual activity. Sex between two people was more arousing than one person masturbating, which was more arousing than a naked body walking around. That that was what predicted arousal, not the gender of the actors. It's like 
gender schmender. For women, it was just sort of like, any sex is good. Like, the more sex, the better. And she's actually found this response. If women are in general more flexible in what they find sexually appealing, then that flexibility may allow us to more readily entertain the idea of having romantic relationships, regardless of the gender of the person. Surveys show that 14% of women and 9% of men report having same-sex attractions. However, only 1-2% to of the population claim to be exclusively homosexual. That means that most of these people, myself included, are on a spectrum. Most of us are attracted to males and females to some degree, and it may not be a stable thing that defines us or that we must discover early on and stick to. Lisa Diamond says we have been ignoring this thing, what it really is, not only in science, but in our popular culture. If you look at a population level, um, there has been same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior going on on this planet everywhere. There is, you know, every culture that you find has some version of it, but rarely is it exclusive same-sex behavior. Um, and only in the modern West are there individuals who sort of openly identify as gay or lesbian. That's a purely Western construct. But that doesn't mean that same-sex attraction, even in a relatively exclusive form, didn't exist. It's just that our way of sort of, you know, uh, turning that phenomenon into a sort of a studyable thing is very different in the modern West than it has been everywhere else. And we've created gay and lesbian and bisexual categories because they are useful heuristics. They're useful mental shortcuts, but they are not necessarily the natural form of this phenomenon. Sometimes science is unsatisfying because it can feel sterile or cold or lacking in some essential humanity. But in this case, it was actually science that gave me back my own narrative and that made me feel human. It told me that what I perceived as my real experience was valid. Science is telling a story that I think might resonate with others in this community as well. I think many of us, women especially, may have experienced this and do not know how to talk about it in a culture that has given us categorical explanations of sexuality. Many of us live on mushy, continuous scales of attraction. And what's more, these spectrums are not just about sexual preferences, but also about emotions, memories, histories, humor, each with triggers that make our hearts flutter in different ways and that can change from one year to the next. We are complicated animals. We need to move towards a more nuanced way of understanding this, one that does not treat people as categorically this thing or that other thing, but rather as the complex individuals that we are. Thank you to Lisa Diamond for contributing on the science side of things and for basically being my hero. The music that you heard came from Blue Dot Sessions, Circus Marcus, and Poddington Bear. The theme music is, as always, from Follies. This podcast is funded by a small grant from the Association for Psychological Sciences. If this episode has meant anything to you, if it's made you think or learn, pass it on. Put it on your Facebook, your Twitter, send it to a friend or two or three, and subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. Also, leave a review on iTunes that actually helps to increase our visibility. Okay. 
Before you turn me off, I have two things to ask, so wait. First, if you are interested in donating to this podcast or in being a sponsor, that would be amazing. These podcasts are infrequent because they take an enormous amount of time and money to produce. If you love these and you want to hear them more often, shoot me an email and I'll tell you how you can pitch in. My email is an inexact science podcast at gmail.com. And second, I have been working on some cool, kind of weird, but beautiful stories that are more on the human experience side of things and less about science. I'm toying with the idea of releasing those stories on this podcast. They're stories that are more like parts one and two of this four-part series, but I want to hear from you, the listeners. I want to know if you would be down to hear those kinds of stories coming through your Inexact Science feed. So let me know. You can go to the website and inexactscience.com and leave a comment on this episode, or you can shoot me an email. Again, my email is an inexactsciencepodcast at gmail.com.